Welcome to the Advanced Persistent Security Podcast, where we discuss the world of IT and cybersecurity. Don't be left in the dark about what's going on in the world around you. Here is your host, Joe Gray. Welcome to the Advanced Persistent Security Podcast. I'm Joe Gray. With me today is Matthew Eliason, partner of Advanced Persistent Security. You may remember him from the ransomware discussion in episode 12. I would like to give you a little bit of good news. We've been in contact with EC Council, the organization behind Certified Ethical Hacker, Computer Hacking Forensics Investigator, EC Council Certified Security Analyst and Licensed Penetration Tester, and Certified Chief Information Security Officer. We've partnered with them to come up with a couple of coupon codes for their Hacker Halted event in Atlanta, Georgia, September 11th through 14th and September 15th and 16th. With the coupon code H-H-A-P-S-T-R-N. We will put this on the show notes, by the way. You will get training of your choice for one of those four certifications for the cost of $19.99. It is regularly $29.99. This includes your official courseware, one, one complimentary exam voucher, a certificate of attendance to use for CPEs, and lunch and coffee breaks throughout the duration of the training, as well as free admission to the conference on September 15th and 16th. If you are not interested in getting the training or you don't have the budget to do so, you can get CPEs for going to the conference on September 15th and 16th for the cost of $35. The normal cost is $199. You can use offer code HHAPSCON on our website. We have a blog post and an event for this that has a link to the actual event RSVP website to do so. So when you enter those promotional codes, you will automatically get the discount. So now that that business is taken care of, and today is May 5th, I would like to say on a belated note, may the 4th be with you. And Revenge of the Fifth. Yes. And we cannot forget, despite my inability to consume alcohol, today is Cinco de Mayo. So, Cinco de Mayo, Cinco de Mayo, No, I was thinking the, uh, you could have, you could have May the Fourth be with you, Revenge of the... Attack of the Cuervo and Revenge of the Sixth. That's what I was just thinking. And you can incorporate Cinco de Mayo all into it. <laughs> that is definitely a distinct possibility. I was thinking uh, kind of along the lines of um, some tarantula. I'm not a fan of Jose. <laughs> You're not a fan of Either way, so... In the past week, Verizon released their data breach investigations report. This is a beautiful document of 85 pages of goodness. We would really have no credibility as a cybersecurity podcast if we did not do an episode to talk about it. So guess what? We're going to talk about it. I like right, so, right on the front page, 89% of breaches had a financial or espionage motive. I mean, that's, that's part of the title. Well, yeah. Um, that's not a big surprise in the least. Solely on the premise of people – there are people who hack for fun. There are people who hack to learn things. 
but if it's getting to the point, it, looking at the sponsor sheet in, in pages two and three, looking at those organizations, if they're going after those groups, it's not for fun. It's for gain of some sort. So basically what they're saying is the nine incident classification patterns they identified in 2014 are still the same. With the victim demographics, they're saying that it's mostly North and South America, Australia, China, India, parts of Africa, specifically in Southern Africa and Europe, with a little bit in the Arabian Peninsula. <coughs> they look at several industries. It's not really worth discussing all the industries they look at. Here is uh, something that we do need to keep in, into a, account. For the purpose of this data breach, small businesses are considered organizations with fewer than 1,000 employees and large are organizations with greater than 1,001 employees. They also use the definitions of incident versus breach. So an incident is a security event that compromises the confidentiality, integrity, or availability of an asset. A breach is an incident that results in disclosure. So you have an incident that can be an attack, and you have a breach. A breach affects confidentiality, whereas general cyber attacks can affect confidentiality, integrity, or availability. A denial of service attack affects availability, defacing a website affects integrity, and exfiltrating of data and putting it on pastebin, that affects confidentiality, that is your data breach, if you will. Some people generically use the term breach to say anything that is inside the perimeter. So looking at the trends, it appears as if the trend is still staying the same, but kind of a, we're seeing a little bit of a rise in the external threat, not as much collusion, perhaps a little bit more internal and less partner. Why? I said this before, but it, it appears to be mostly financial or espionage with uh, very little fun, ideology, grudge, or anything else. A secondary motive would be how it happened. According to this report, everything's kind of on the rise with regards to the top three that I'm going to mention. The rest are kind of on the uh, decline. The top three being hacking, malware, and social. These are rising almost seemingly exponential in terms of the breach count, whereas we're still seeing a rise in errors, but misuse and physical and certainly environmental, they're kind of plateauing out and staying regular. Well, it's saying, so, it's saying phishing's definitely, um, it's the platform for which all the others kind of build on. Oh, of course. Well, for example, point of sale, point of sale attacks. Like I was saying, uh, with the phishing, it looks like it's saying that phishing is the, the platform of which many other attacks are built upon, whether the malware, hacking, social engineering, they all fall into the – they all build upon that. Right. Well, I mean, look at it this way. Phishing is social engineering. So right. in order for phishing to work, social has to increase no matter what. And the two motives of social engineering, as I've preached before, I think I said this numerous times in the last three podcasts that I've recorded, social engineering aims to do one of two things. Get someone to give up some sort of information, be it sensitive information straight up, 
aggregate information or stuff that they can use for inference attacks. The alternative of social engineering, the alternative motive is to elicit an action. And in this case, installing the back door, implanting the malware or whatever in terms of the hacking or the malware portion that, that is most certainly enabled via phishing and social engineering. I can put together a very convincing email and establish a netcat listener on a web server somewhere and get a user to click that shortened URL, go to my web server, and as soon as they do it, well, now I have a netcat listener on their system because their antivirus is outdated. With that netcat listener, I can now execute Metasploit, get a meterpreter session, and deliver whatever payload I want, and with a reverse TCP session, well, I, I, I own that box now. It's not that challenging. Right, and um, social engineering, in your opinion, it uses, what does it prey upon with the normal average human? I mean, when I think of, when I have seen this type of, these types of attacks, and I've had them, everybody's had them, um, it preys upon, in my opinion, one of two, two things. Now, you might be able to add a few, but I think they all fall in the same thing. It preys upon fear and greed. So instead of two, there's actually five reasons why social engineering works. And like you said, fear and greed, that's two reasons. The, other is pe the others are people are naive. They don't understand that this is fake. They believe it. They believe they're going to get that free carton of cigarettes for life, the free Chick-fil-A for the duration of their pregnancy or whatever. So they click it. A lot of times celebrities will endorse things that aren't necessarily true or they might do fake deaths or scandals or whatever. For example, where I work at, as my day job, we had a user actually fall victim to a phishing attack because she clicked a link to find out about Prince's death. <laughs> Fortunately, this user immediately shut down her machine and self-reported, so we were able to contain the, the incident, and it really came to be nothing, but nonetheless, it was taken care of. And then there's always social media scams. There's always... There's always fake antivirus. There's always holidays. There's so much that they can go off of, but it's primarily greed, fear, ignorance slash being naive, the desire to help, or being attracted to something. I mean, you can just or, be, you can be on Facebook for two seconds and you see how people, how easily people are manipulated. Yes. Share this, and Mark Zuckerberg is going to pick one of you. And give you a billion dollars. <laughs> I would even venture to say that Mark Zuckerberg doesn't even have a Facebook account. And if he does, it's probably under a fake name. <laughs> but people, I've seen people share that so many times, and I'm like, are you, are you serious? Uh, do, you believe, exactly. do you believe that? And, yeah, you know? and I mean, I've seen things where people put that privacy statement up of, on this date, I declare myself a sovereign citizen, and everything that is on my... Facebook wall is, belongs to me. Facebook may not use it. It's like, hey, dude, did you not read the terms and terms conditions? Terms of service. <laughs> right. Um, and they're like, well, this is true. I'm like, no, it's not. Here you go. Here's the, the explicit sections. And they will actually argue with it. And it's like, hey, here's a link. The local news said it's fake. Okay, I believe it then. It's like, okay, dude, I'm a professional hacker. Um, I study this stuff for a living. And it's, uh, no, that, that's a lie. It's, it's true. I can do this. And then the second that someone with a journalism degree on TV says, this is fake. Okay, I believe that. 
Okay, sure, whatever. But anyway, moving on. Looking at the threat action, it appears to be uh, we we appear to be seeing a rise in uh, a rise in command and control malware and use of stolen cards, and then of course, as I said, data exfiltration, the exporting of data. This is kind of interesting because. I'm not going to lie, I listen to, to Security Weekly, and something that Joff Thayer was talking about in the last episode that I listened to was he was doing these pen tests for where he works, the uh, Black Hills Information Security, and he was doing a unique type of pen test called the C2 pen test, which means that the organization that's paying for it actually gives him a regular user account on a regular machine, and it is his job to try to escalate his privileges and be able to work up vertically, move laterally, and pivot. That actually creates a valid need. This C2 malware creates a valid need for that type of penetration test. Uh, the use of stolen cards. Look at how many times websites and organizations are breached and credit card data is stolen. My credit card information was stolen not even a month ago. They spent $4.47 in Mexico at this place called El Topi. I still don't know what it is. But at this point, I don't even care. Then, you know, you're looking at the export of data, exfil, exfiltration. When malware can do that, that's when it becomes dangerous. This is a time that you really need to have a baseline set up. This is a time that you really need to be monitoring your outgoing ports more so than your incoming ports. What's trying to come into your network is important, but it's almost less important than what's leaving your network. So if you have a bunch of encrypted connections, maybe not necessarily over SSL, but perhaps over Tor or VPN connections, that's something worth looking at. And then, of course, you know, phishing that's, that's on this list as well. Moving on, though, to the types of devices, this year we saw uh, a, cont a continuation of the trend of decreases in servers, Increases in people, increases in user devices, um, a slight increase in media, and decreases in kiosk terminals and networks. Looks like there's definitely some correlation between person and user device going up almost the exact same per, same percentage ratio. Yeah, with exactly. the server going down, so the server looks like the servers are becoming more secure, making them a less uh, less attack target. The IoT devices, going back to that IoT again, IoT devices are becoming more financially as a good target, and they're less secure. I mean, that makes sense. Um, that does make sense, but how about this? Let's, let's think about it this way, right? The reason the, the servers are going down, I'm going to give it two reasons. Number one, people are actually getting better about patching their servers. That's, that's a general assumption that may or may not be accurate. Another assumption that could be why the server count is going down is would be because people are moving to the cloud. They have fewer servers. So if they're in the cloud, there are fewer servers to actually breach. With regards to user devices, a lot of people are getting away from that whole you have to use organization devices and allowing that bring your own device. And because of that, they're allowing people to use their own uh, personal cell phones, their own personal computers or whatever, as opposed to issuing them one at work as a cost-cutting measure. 
they can put a sandbox of some sort on the device and, and have some level of security. So obviously people are going to try to exploit that. And then of course, you know, as if this horse hasn't already been killed, beaten, revived, beaten some more, and killed again, uh, people are being exploited via social engineering. Of course. Do you expect that trend to continue? Yes, I do. The only way I see it going down in any way, shape, or form would be through extensive awareness programs like what we offer at Advanced Persistent Security. I'm not saying that our training will completely solve a problem with social engineering. Even if you combined our training with Chris Hednagy's training or FishMe, Sands, or whoever, it's not going to solve the problem exclusively, but it will raise enough awareness so that you can stop the, the low-hanging fruit. There's some users that it doesn't matter. You can train them every week for the rest of their life, and they will still fall victim to it. All right, moving on to uh, the next topic here. Mick was wrong. Time is not on our side. So one thing that we've noticed, it takes less time to fully compromise the system, but on the plus side, the time, the amount of time that it's days or less to detect it has actually gotten better. So that means that people are kind of taking monitoring more seriously. They're taking having tools more seriously, probably investing in their security personnel more seriously. So what comes with this, though, there's been a significant change in the paradigm as to how they are detected. So in 2013, there was a crossover between fraud detection and law enforcement, with third party being just underneath it and internal. I hate to say, but internal is decreasing every year. Fraud detection has decreased over the past three years where law enforcement and third party have increased. The law enforcement obviously being because it's interstate or especially with ransomware, the affected parties are urged to contact the FBI. And with third parties, a lot of times like with OPM, the reason they found the OPM breach was because a vendor was doing a demonstration with live data. So it's, it's interesting. You said internals going down. That, that doesn't seem like a good thing. For organizations, it doesn't. But at the same time, we could also think of it this way. That whole third-party thing that is going up, that could be because of the rise of security as a service or managed security providers. I, I don't have any quantitative proof behind that, but you know, just in the, for the sake of thinking, thinking that people are better than what they are sometimes, that could be a very valid scenario. So let's move on to the uh, vulnerabilities. Okay, so looking at the trends over the past year, we'll start with vulnerabilities. So go ahead, give us the glance. At a glance, they're looking at software vulnerabilities and if, they're, if we're making any progress at addressing them and ways to improve. So addressing them is obviously finer vulnerability, patch of vulnerability. What's the zero day between the time of getting it out? and how many people are actually applying it. Um, the key findings were older vulnerabilities are still the most targeted. Methodical patch approach that emphasizes consistency and coverage is more important than the expedient patching. So even though I messed that word up, basically putting a patch together the right way, methodically, 
is better than putting out something very fast that doesn't patch it correctly. Well, that's part of it. Here's here's the other side of that coin. Getting things patched quickly, it is important. Don't get me don't get me or this report wrong. You should patch things as quickly as possible. But at the same time, doing it from a methodical approach, yes, here's the thing about it. You go and you take out your CVSS10, then your CVSS9, 8, and 7. You assess your risk associated with those, and with regards to it, if it's a CVSS10 on a machine that is purely internal and it's connected to absolutely nothing, and you have a CVSS8 on a public-facing web server, which should you take care of first? Eight. Of course. So that's more of that whole methodical approach. But with it, sometimes with some of the more dangerous, if you will, vulnerabilities, there, there's a little bit more than MCI because you might have to apply the software update and then you may have to go through and make configuration changes, changes to the configuration files, the registry keys, some DLLs, or what have you. And then you need to validate using a vulnerability scan and then you may even need to try to validate it using specific tools. So that I, I could definitely agree with that. And to beat that old, the older vulnerabilities mule, you know, there are still people using Microsoft XP. So, you know, using Windows XP, there's never going to be another patch for it. There's still people I mean, using Flash in their organizations. Outdated Flash. You know, uh, on Twitter last night, I saw uh, the Gruck. He had retweeted where somebody took a screenshot that Spotify required the use of Flash. <coughs> Instead of HTML5. But, you know, with Spotify, they, as part of their security policy, they they monitor Pastebin for dumps of their website. So, you know, it is what it is. Scrolling down, it talks about the tortoise and the hare. And, yeah, getting your stuff out quickly, you know, you're going to have some success, but you do need to do things slow and steady. You shouldn't be... Basically, as I see this, you shouldn't be letting your patches pile up. You shouldn't be running updates once a month. You should be running them on a near-continuous basis. But obviously, you don't want to be going too slow. So later on, it talks about how fast, how long it takes to exploit vulnerabilities by the category. There wasn't really a whole lot of scenarios of OpenSSL or Oracle being exploited. And it took about 140 to 150 days for Apple, uh, about 200 to 250 days for Mozilla. Uh, I'm going to call this at about 10 to 110 days for Microsoft. And I'm going to say 0 to 35 days for Adobe. Which, Adobe Flash, Adobe Reader, Adobe Air, Adobe Shockwave, Adobe Photoshop, Adobe Creative Cloud, so forth and so on. Adobe, Adobe has a lot of products. <laughs> Adobe. Adobe. Vulnerability company. <laughs> we will pen test but, your network for you. Just install our software. If you really want to know how a pivot works, install Flash. It appears as if in 2015 we went back to the num to about the same rate of in the ballpark of about 75% of CVs, common vulnerabilities and exploits, 
vulnerability uh, exploited by their publication date, meaning published in or hit in the wild. Recommended controls. Very simply, knowledge is power. You need to have a vulnerability process. A vulnerability management program is key. While we used to market ourselves as doing vulnerability management for organizations, that's not really our wheelhouse anymore, but we can help you come up with a sound vulnerability management policy and program. Uh, you should always have a backup in case things can't be patched. Sometimes patching is the wrong answer. Sometimes you cannot go to a new operating system because it is a vital business system for a core function of the business that will impact the business significantly financially or via other catastrophic means if you update it or what have you. And then, of course, run vulnerability scans. Uh, it's saying, you know, 85% uh, of the CVEs, common vulnerabilities, and exploits were in the top 10. And then it's also saying that most mostly are mostly inconsistently older than one year. So, you know, there's, there's patches out there for these things because there isn't any, again, if you go back to the, the previous figures, Mozilla being the longest to exploit 200 and, you know, three quarters of a year, let's say 10 months. If they're greater than a year, there's something out for them. They're just not being patched. So patching's not good. I mean, patching's all well and good, but if you're not patching the right things, what's the point? Right. And, well, <laughs> and I mean, here's the other thing of that, though. Mozilla Mozilla's very quick on getting updates out. Google is quick on getting updates out. The problems, well, actually, Microsoft is very quick about getting things out. They come out every week. The problem is like Adobe and Java come out quarterly. So that basically gives you up to 89 days to exploit it, assuming that who you're trying to exploit patches on the first day of availability. Is that, do they do it quarterly because the software is free? I don't know. That's a good but, good question I'd like an answer to at some point. I'll <laughs> have to look that up. So we're going to move on to the next one. It is phishing. So I'm going to preface this before you give us the glance. I'm going to quote something else that I saw that the Gruck put on Twitter. The next topic is phishing. Before you give us the glance, I want to give us another quote from the Gruck. Give a man a zero day and he'll have access for a day. Teach a man to fish, and he'll have access for life. Take it away. Well, the at the glance for fishing here. So the description, obviously, uh, fishing is a form of social engineering, uh, probably one of the most common forms uh, in the cyber world, typically in an email sent to the victim in the intent of tricking them, the recipient, to open an attachment or click on a link. Um, top patterns, everything else, web app, Attacks and cyber espionage. Frequency, that's a, that's a pretty good one. 9,576 total incidents, 916 with confirmed data disclosure. Um, so I'm, I'm assuming the 9,500 is just what was disclosed for the, the terms. That's of from this. their sample. Right, from their sample. Yeah. So looking at about 10%. About 10% of people will click well, on the 10 link. Right. Of, of the total incidents, about 10% would click the link and actually disclose something, their key which findings, is an alarming fact. Their key findings were 13% of people tested, so they tested people, clicked on the phishing attachment. Median time to click is very short. So 13% is really the percentage they came up with. 
Right. And this is based That's on insane. information from SANS the, and the Anti-Fish Work Group. So with the Anti-Fish Work Group, I'm actually a member of the Anti-Fish Work Group on the academic side, and it basically just collects a lot of data about all kinds of fishing stuff. So this is probably, I would say this is probably between 1% and 10% of the actual total number of fishing attacks in the world, or in the United States, maybe even the world. It may be less than 1% for the entire world. Yeah, the, I, the total I, number was uh, 636,000 phishing emails. And I think that's probably for one mailbox. Yeah, 3% of the targeted individuals alerted to management. Only 3% of 636,000. Right. Well, I'm going to take that opportunity to say that with Advanced Persistent Security, one of the offerings that we, give is, that we have is security awareness training, specifically social engineering and phishing awareness training. And where a lot of the other organizations miss the mark is they just give generic training, which is fine. It's better than nothing. But with the training that we design, we actually take your organization's policies and put in your training the explicit steps that your management wants your employees to take. So if you have a mailbox that you want your employees to forward the phishing emails to, it's in the training. If you want them to forward it as an attachment so you can dissect the header, that's in the training. If you want them to ignore or delete it, steps for self-reporting, that's also in the training. And I think that's actually more important than anything else solely on the fact of the devil you know is better than the devil you don't know. It's a lot better to be able to say we had an incident – well, we had an event, it is an incident, and we don't know where it's coming from. Whereas you have a user that says, hey, you know what, I messed up, I clicked on something, I immediately unplugged the computer from the network, and uh, I locked a screen, do with it what you need to do. So, I mean, that's that's remarkable. Hey, but said, yeah, part a, lot of, a lot of the training don't say that, though. A lot of the training doesn't go over... You know, why do people not self-report? Um, because management is going to, like the report here even says, take, drag them outside and collectively stone them. So the training can not only go to the users, but for management too. This, they, people need to self-report. Nobody needs to stone them or they need to report themselves so that, like you said, exactly. the devil you know is better than the one you don't know. Right, and another thing you can do is you can actually – Incentivize it for your employees. You can make a game out of it. If they report so many, they get a, uh, a T-shirt. If they report so many, they get 10 minutes off work, and after so many occurrences, they can take an hour off early on Friday or whatever. Or you can give them a parking spot or a gift certificate or enter in a drawing for something for reporting. Not necessarily self-reporting, but reporting when they get those emails themselves. And then if it's a self-report, you know, do whatever it is, you know, give them some sort of training. But, I mean, your, respon your response time greatly improves when you know exactly what you're looking for. A couple other statistics here were the main perpetrators of these attacks were 89% were organized crime syndicates, 9% were state-affiliated actors. So organized crime syndicates, state-affiliated actors – you know that they're putting some work in behind these emails. You know they're putting in work to make them look legit. 
that can fool a lot of people. Right, and a lot of the work that they're having to put into it, honestly, is not necessarily to fool the people. It's to fool the Bayesian filters because that's what's looking for basically the recurrent analysis of how often certain words and phrases are used. So if you can make it through the Bayesian filter and the spam filter and what have you and get to the user, now you actually have a chance of succeeding. If you get caught by either of those two things, it, it's automatically a no-go. But yeah, you have to put in valid concern. Like you have to put something in that's going to be believable and people are going to have to click on it. I forget exactly what it was, but James Line, he is one of the co-authors of the Social Engineering for Pen Testing course that SANS offers. He co-authored it with uh, Dave Shackelford. He was on one of the podcasts. I believe it was Paul Security Weekly. And he was talking about some of the types of phishing emails that his students had drawn up. And they were just amazing. I, I'm going to have to go back and listen to that episode just so I can remember the idea. But when I when I heard about it, I remember now. Actually, it was sending an email claiming to be encrypted and getting users to click the link, saying you had to click this link to release the email. And as soon as it happened, the malware payload just hit it immediately. So, I mean, the recommended controls, you got to filter it. Yeah. An email filter is great, but it's not going to do everything for it. An email filter is not intelligent enough at this point in time to be able to control your users and say, hey, you know what, you're not going to click this. Talk amongst yourselves. Exactly. You need to. It needs to be an open dialect. You need to have someone that's got their door open that employees can go and ask questions to and not be frowned upon, scoffed at, made fun of, or humiliated. So the employees know get... if there's something fishy going on. Right, exactly. Um, you can even put a button on the taskbar, as this says. I mean, where I work, I have an email address that is phishing at. If someone has a question about phishing, they can send it there. If they get a phishing email, they can forward it there. I'll look at it, and if I decide I'm going to run phishing tests on employees from not my email account, I might draw from those emails as um, – I might make them my muse. But – I like this third point. The one click does not uh, one click does not a catastrophe make. So I think that's supposed to be punny on the terrible grammar of most phishing emails. But one click is not the end of the world unless you are talking about hitting the enter key as root on a Linux machine after typing sudo rm minus rf. Uh, <laughs> splat from the root directory. <laughs> but that's not even a click. That's, that's a keystroke. So with that, you know, it, it's not going to be the end of the world. You just need to know what to do and follow your incident response and handling process with regards to your identification, your containment, your eradication, your recovery, and your lessons learned. And then finally, you need to keep your eye on the ball. You need to continue the training and continue the open discussion. So we're going to take a quick break. We are actually about 20 pages into the 85-page document. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we will crank up the jam with some credentials. Sit tight. Are you looking for a place to advertise to the unique audience of IT security professionals and enthusiasts? Look no further. Advanced Persistent Security is seeking sponsors. This slot could be yours. 
Contact sales at advancedpersistentsecurity.net for more information. Okay, we're back from our break, and now we're going to talk about credentials. Matthew, give us the glance. All righty, the at a glance. Um, use of stolen credentials and other hacking malware actions typically target traditional usernames, passwords, authentication, and they're prevalent across numerous patterns. Um, you see the frequency... They're disclosing that 1,429 incidents with confirmed data disclosure. The key finding, static credentials continue to be targeted by several of the top hacking, action varieties, and malware functionalities. So static credentials, why is that a problem? Well, it's not if your password can get brute forced, it's how long it takes to brute force it. So if... If you have a four-character password, I can brute force that a lot faster than I can a 24-character password. Yeah. If I know what key types you use, I can do it a lot faster. If I have your hash, I can do it incredibly fast using a rainbow table. But I just recorded a podcast with Leighton Johnson talking about the Cloud Security Alliance Treacherous 12. We covered the first four controls, uh, concerns. rather. The second concern is actually insufficient identity, credential, and access management. So with that, we had a very elaborate discussion about user provisioning, user deprovisioning, and passwords. So yes, you should have a password management cycle. No password should be in existence greater than 30, 60, or 90 days, depending on what your appetite for risk is. Provisioning users is very important, but I think deprovisioning users is even more important because when your employee works their last day of work, either by their choosing or your choosing, you need to automatically disable their account. Don't delete it. You might need it for litigation or forensics purposes, but you should have a policy in place that dictates how long you keep that account open. And with that, you definitely have to enforce strong passwords, you know, greater than 14 characters. Honestly, at this point, I would say even greater than 20 characters. The less human readable, the better. It should have all four of the typefaces, not just three. I've recently become a big fan of password management software like 1Password by Agile Bits. It, sure, it costs like 65 bucks to use it, but, but you have one master password that encrypts basically a, a vault of all your passwords to all these web applications and websites using 256-bit encryption, and you no longer have to type in your username and password. You may have to type in your username, but with your password, you can either copy and paste it or directly put it into the form using uh, a web plugin, and that makes it so much better. You still need to go through and cycle your passwords and change them every every so often, but because they're not human-readable and you're not having to remember them, you can make them even more complex. In the past, I prided myself in using a 16-character password with all four typefaces in it. Since starting to use the password management software that I use, I don't have a single password that's under 20 characters. So with that, it, it's definitely something to look at. The main limitation that I would warn you of for is using certain characters that your phone's keyboard may not be able to uh, type in. So when you, when you look at other types of stolen credentials, we're talking about credit cards 
And the reason that's a big deal is because people are able to steal the MagStripe data. They're able to spoof it and they're able to use the credit cards in Mexico at places called El Topi and not give me the $4.47 for whatever it is. So that's probably your biggest concern. Then you've got the exfiltration of data via malware, the C2 from malware, uh, phishing, and then key loggers. So that's probably that's your biggest incident count. I would definitely say that uh, having strong password policies and using common sense and only transmitting your credit card electronically over encrypted trusted connections uh, would probably be your best advice for that. So with that being said, um, we're going to move on to incident classification patterns, which I just sat through the SANS GCIH training. I'm going to be sitting for the exam pretty soon. So this is definitely within my, uh, my wheelhouse. So the nine buckets of incidents from the 2014 report that we, that we mentioned earlier, basically that boils down to miscellaneous errors, privileged misuse, uh, physical loss, denial of service, everything else, and then crimeware, web app attacks, point of sale, cyber espionage, and skimmers. The most significant drop-off being between web application attacks and point of sale. That basically you have 10 times the amount of web app attacks that you do on point of sale. So that's definitely quite a range of incidents. That's in terms of the incidents per pattern. The percent of breaches per pattern, that changes the dynamic significantly. We're back to web app, which is number one with twice as many as point of sale, and point of sale having about three times as many as miscellaneous errors and everything else. You definitely have to triage. This goes back to your whole asset identification, your asset classification, and the methodical approach in vulnerability management. So using secure coding principles to prevent yourself from being susceptible to cross-site scripting, SQL injection, buffer overflow, cross-site request forgery, and what have you, that is very important. With point of sale, that's going to be an industry change. That's not something that's going to change overnight because a lot of them are using embedded systems with less than hardened infrastructure on non-segmented networks that allows for easy pivoting. They don't use much obscurity through their architecture, and once an attacker is in, they can pivot from store to store to store. And then, you know, there are uh, websites like um, like uh, Shodan, where you can go and find uh, known open vulnerable point of sale systems, industrial control systems, or what have you. So that definitely makes it a problem. We have, in the year 2015 going into 2016, we have seen more web app attacks and insider privilege misuse. Um, nowhere near as many point-of-sale intrusions and skimmers as we used to. Uh, fewer errors. The uh, physical theft and loss seems to be about the same. We have seen more denial of service and more everything else. So... Um, that's based on the incident classification, based on the frequency and confirmed data breaches. We've seen significant growth in web application attacks, and basically everything else more or less stayed the same. But, Matthew, are you seeing where I'm going with this uh, web application attack? I mean, part of Internet of Things is what? 
Um, well, web apps, obviously. <laughs> oh man, so web app attacks. Yeah, so Internet of Things, you know, is 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 the devices uh, exponentially grow, and we're gonna have um, what was the number by 2021? How many IoT devices? Is I don't I don't recall, but it I was can over a billion too many. worldwide. It was over a billion IoT devices by 2021. And that doesn't surprise me, but I can guarantee you it's probably I mean, too many devices. Volume is going to tell you that web app attacks are going to continually increase. Well, think of it this way. Everybody attacked servers until until PCs it. came around. Right. And then after that, they started moving to PCs. Well, then came the PDA. Then came... The smartphone. Exactly. And then came the tablet, and then then came the wearable. Now, now your now your your fridge is going to be an IoT device, and your your TV exactly. and your I mean thermostat. You, you name it, your thermostat. I'm never going to get an IoT connected oven. It's never going to happen. I don't care if I have to stick with a really old one forever. I'm never going to get a internet enabled oven. That just sounds like the worst idea ever. What do you what do you think about that one? Oven, I'm not a fan of. Washing machine, maybe. But, but think about what you could do to an oven. Somebody hacks into your exactly. network, turns on your oven to full blast and burns your house down. I mean, well, if you've got gas, it's even worse. Yeah, with the washing machine, yeah, somebody could flood somebody else's house, of course. Uh, the one thing that I do kind of like in terms of Internet of Things. Uh, I saw a Bluetooth-enabled barbecue-slash-smoker at the store the other day. I was like, man, I've never cooked brisket before, but I think it takes a long time, and I'm really too lazy to go check on it. So (laughs) I could get this and sync it with my phone and make all the changes and uh, monitor its status from the couch. (laughs) That's good. I like that. So, but I'm, you know, I, I'm self-confessed to be lazy. I mean, part of cooking a brisket is going out there and uh, you know smelling it and flipping it and doing all the little, little things. No, man. No, the best part of brisket is whenever you cut when you it. Eat it. <laughs> get in my belly. So we're moving on to web app attacks. This is a great transition point. We've seen it in finance, information, and the retail industries. Matthew, give us the glance. All right. At the added glance, the description, for those um, who aren't familiar, any incident in which a web application was the vector of the attack, which is where where the attack started and where it was pointed to and where it came through. So the vector. This includes exploits of the code-level vulnerabilities and the applications of sorting authentication mechanisms. So the top in- industries, finance, information, and retail uh, the frequency, 5,334 total incidents, 19,000 additional with secondary motivation, 908 with confirmed data disclosure. So looking close to 20% with data disclosure. So the key findings, um, the breaches within this pattern were heavily influenced by the information gathered by contributors involved in the Drydex botnet takedown. So we'll talk about botnets. Well, Drydex, uh, one thing that I have noticed in this GBIR. Drydex is a very recurring word within this. 
Um, yeah, I'd use key loggers to dominate the okay. Key loggers, defacement is still commonplace. The word drydex is used uh, 13 times in this 85-page paper. So calling a specific botnet out by name that many times in a paper of this size, that's pretty significant. Nonetheless, with this, it talks about the defacement and uh, CMS plugins. So that's talking things like Wix, Weebly, WordPress, so forth and so on, custom CMS as content management systems. So with web app, there's all kinds of issues that come with it. It depends on where you got the app. Is it, some, is it a CMS? So are you keeping your WordPress up to date? Are you, are you testing your plugins before you just roll them out to make sure they don't break things? Are you monitoring to make sure they don't exfiltrate data? Are you scanning your own site periodically using something like Nmap? And there's actually three WordPress scripts in the NSE engine. You could also uh, get far more in-depth with writing your own scripts as well. Um, is it a homegrown one? Does it have default credentials like something we blogged about late last year, baby monitors? A lot of baby monitors were falling victim to an attack because they were using an internet-connected web application that had default credentials. So basically people were spying on other people's kids, and it was absolutely creepy and disgusting. Right. So in terms of – okay, so what else it says about this? Obviously the botnet, it's still talking about Drydex. It's still talking about C2 keyloggers, and what have you. Uh, phishing and social engineering still plays a strong association in this, uh, as does mail servers. Obviously, a lot of people use Outlook. I'm sorry, not Outlook Exchange, which will have uh, Outlook Web Access, which if this goes back to the whole password thing, users could have weak passwords. You could be using outdated IIS. You could be giving away too much information during banner-grabbing attempts to IIS or... Uh, exchange your personnel could be even your system administrators could be falling victim to phishing attacks that's giving away information or my personal favorite you could be uh, allowing people to reset your password too easily you're giving away too much information that the the social engineers are able to track you using ancestry.com or look and see what your mom's maiden name is on Facebook or what have you with this, though, the top 10 threat action varieties within these breaches, the use of stolen credit cards, the use of a backdoor or C2, phishing, keylogger, malware for command and control, uh, data exfiltration, and then at a near minuscule uh, level, you've got uh, SQL injection, backdoor, brute force, etc. In terms of recommended controls, you should probably use multi-factor authentication. You should, of course, trust, or I'm sorry, you should most certainly not trust any input. You should do input validation and scrub specific characters such as less than, greater than, semicolon, comma, apostrophe, hyphen, uh, apostrophes, I'm sorry, not apostrophes, parentheses, and what have you. Uh, you should do code reviews to make sure you're not using things like string copy and string length. 
which can create buffer overflow attacks, which are even worse than SQL injection or cross-site scripting. You should be man you should actually have logs on your website and you should be reviewing them periodically to make sure that people who are attempting this are getting blocked. And then you should also establish a patch process for your CMS and your plugins, which you can actually turn that on to automatic and it's completely it's completely out of your hair. Next, we've got point of sale intrusions. So we're a couple years removed from the target data breach. We've still had others, none quite to the same degree, and uh, it's still a problem. So give us the glance. At a glance, um, description for those who aren't familiar, Remote attacks against environments where card present retail transactions are conducted. Point of sale terminals and point of sale controllers are targeted access. Physical tampering of the PED pads or swapping out devices covered in the payment card skimmer section. So obviously, you know, retail, food services is where a lot of this stuff happens. Uh, 534 total incidents, 2015, 525 the confirmed data disclosure. So they're almost hitting uh, hitting a thousand there for uh, one of sale intrusions. Key findings were um, many key logging malware, malware has a significant role in many point of sale attacks being a common method of capturing valid credentials to be used against the point of sale assets. Which this was actually, if I recall correctly, this affected uh, the Hilton hotel chain the Hyatt Hotel chain, and Donald Trump's. Uh, and then obviously you can't talk about point of sale and skimmers without talking about gas pumps. Right. The thing about skimmers, the external skimmers, that's typically you know your petty thief. The ones that actually get implanted internally to the gas pump, that's, that's more along the lines of your organized crime. We saw a higher... A, the number of breaches for point-of-sale intrusions has been going up year by year. The percentage of successful attacks actually went down, and now it's back on the rise. And I think that a lot of that has to do with the Internet of Things as well as the evolution of better technologies for data exfiltration without getting caught, encrypted technologies, near-field communication, and then RAM scraping course. You had some notorious uh, software such as Dexter, vSkimmer, Alina, Backoff, and Jack POS that allowed command and control and backdoor capabilities, which basically allowed the bot herder or the owner, if you will, to have a means to exfiltrate the data without, without detection. So in terms of recommended controls, you need to try to get a the hardware tokens, the chip and pin system, the I believe it's the EVM. It's something that's mandated by, I believe, uh, May of this year or next year in the United States. The rest of the world pretty much already has it. But the is it, is it card... mandated by, what is it, the ECC? I'm not sure whom. I think it may be the PCI, PCI. board. Okay. Could be. I'm not entirely sure because, honestly, I'm not savvy on the finance industry 
uh, with regards to security there. I'm knowledgeable of PCI, Graham Leach, Bliley, and what have you, but I'm not by any means uh, an expert to the same level as I would say. My, my competence is not as high there as it is in the federal sector and the NIST risk management framework. But with regards to it, using chip and pin, that, that does add additional measures. Because yeah, you can swipe the card magnetically, but it makes it very difficult for someone to be able to spoof a card, which it's not impossible. I've heard of it actually happening on a different podcast. I don't recall which one, but it does force you to have something you have, the card and the pen, something you know, and it takes away some of the liability that was previously required for debit. So you should also look at having a monitoring system for your POS environment and validate it because quite honestly, you should be monitoring everything. And without monitoring it, how do you expect to keep it secure? And then, as I've been saying before, you should segregate your, P, uh, your POS environment from everything else. That'll actually make life a lot easier for your PCI team. If your point of sale environment is segmented onto one specific uh, subnet and your other PCI stuff is on another subnet, but they have that logical uh, connection for, uh, for communication, that would be your PCI boundary as opposed to having, you know, your your logistics personnel's machines in the PCI environment. It, it minimizes your attack surface, which is, is definitely a best practice. Aha, the next topic, insider threat, specifically insider and privilege misuse. So a lot of people might even say that senior management is the number one insider threat. I don't know. It could be. Give us the glance. So they had a glance. You know, all incidents are tagged with action category of misuse. Uh, an unapproved or malicious use of organizational resources, it falls within this pattern of insider and privileged misuse. So, uh, and they can be colluding as well. That type of thing can happen. Top industries, public healthcare finance, makes sense. 10,000 incidents. Uh, for this uh, sample, 172 confirmed data disclosures, so close to, it's pretty low actually, what is that, 2 to 3%. Um, the key findings, they're already inside, they're behind your firewall, they're getting, they're, they can get to the data much easier than an external threat, and they're often end users and they're comfortable exfiltrating the data, in the open and in a corporate land. So um, insider threats are, uh, are a big deal. Right, and this goes back to Joff Thayer's C2 pen test. Basically, he was assuming the role of that disgruntled internal employee, that threat actor that may have been paid to get the job internally and do what they've got, to, what they're doing. Uh, there could be some collusion, uh, which I believe to be part of the reason Ashley Madison's attack was the way it was. Uh, and then, of course, you know, there are those capabilities for the external C2, uh, an external source take having the malware to take over an internal machine and be able to provide that insider threat type thing. Um, one thing we are seeing with this report, we're continuing to see the trend of 
financial insider threat go down, but we're seeing a significant uptick in espionage. So what type of espionage? Is this a competitor paying someone to go work for a different competitor? Uh, perhaps. I'm going to say it's more than likely on the state-sponsored level. Right. So what do we see most often? Privilege abuse. If you want to see how well your security policy works, uninstall Solitaire. That is a quote uh, delivered to our podcast via Georgia Viedman that was given by Jason Street. That's the number one use for insider threat. You know, you can mishandle data, okay. You can install unapproved hardware or software. Uh, You can misuse your email or give stuff away or look at porn, but by far privilege abuse is your biggest one. That's going to be using your administrative privileges to reset someone else's account password so that you can go in and perform an action and make it look as if it's them. That could be uh, using a thumb drive as an administrator when you know thumb drives are banned. And with regards to it, one thing we are seeing this year, we're seeing a few more attacks, insider attacks, detected in the hours and days range. Uh, The weeks range appears to uptick a little bit. Days actually went down. Uh, We've seen a pretty significant uptick in both months and years, which is very alarming. Uh, I could imagine how uncomfortable the conversation with management would be to say, hey, you know, uh, you see old John Doe over there? Um, I think he's an insider threat, and here's why. So, I mean, you you hit a good point right there. Um, So a lot of companies focus on um, outsider threat intelligence, right? They look at threat intelligence from – it's coming from the outside in – uh, not too many companies have policy for internal threat intelligence. Who is, like you just said, who is your biggest vulnerabilities? Who are the people that can cause the most damage to your company that are sitting right underneath your nose? And what are the ways to prevent that other than just training? Well, training is vital. You right. have to train your users. And you you need to establish your user patterns. You need to look and see... You know, when when is this employee's normal working hour? Do they ha- really have a need to be there seven hours after their sched- after their um, after their shift, shift is over? Do they really have any? Do they have any valid business need to be trying to access this resource? If no, uh, it's you know something to look at. Uh, put in additional measures. I mean, where I work, we use a log logging agent to. Uh, to collect log data on every single machine. We, we don't discriminate between anybody. So we take that data, we establish a baseline, and if we see something complete out, completely out of the norm, we evaluate it. And more importantly with that whole user training thing, you should train your users on what to look for. You know, when you have a guy who's working as a level one help desk technician He's uh, married and got three kids, and all of a sudden he shows up in a BMW 7 Series, you know, brand new model with, you know, very low mileage on it, or a Bentley, or, you know, whatever, insert expensive car here. He shows up, you know, to work with that. Uh, that's probably worth taking a look at. Yeah, that's... It may be nothing. 
and it, it is kind of wrong to profile somebody for that, but at the same time, you've got to keep your bases covered. Well, the federal and government, I mean, that's... You know, when it's it part of the federal security, training. Yeah, it's part of security clearance training, you know. It, you're looking for things like that, and that's what I'm talking about, threat intelligence. A lot of companies don't do that. They don't profile, quote-unquote, their employees uh, the way they should be. They should they should be looking for things like that. Maybe not necessarily a, why does he have a... Why is he coming in a Bentley? Maybe he leased it. But uh, there's a lot of other behaviors that you can classify as usual or abnormal that can uh, be uh, indicators for uh, illicit activity. Exactly. But, you know, determining those indicators, it's all about having a baseline. So it's definitely worth looking into. Uh, with one of the cases where I work, we had a user that... I had deployed software that would eliminate non-administrators from having the ability to access data on thumb drives. We had an admin, uh, someone with an administrator account that was going into conference rooms, logging in with his administrator account, and watching pornography on thumb drives. Do you know how we caught him? A user reported it. Because they were aware of what they needed to look for, and they saw suspicious behavior and told management management passed the word along to the security staff and the security staff took the necessary steps and found out exactly what was going on so you know that's one case that training really worked so you know the recommended controls here it it talks about you need to look at the evil within you should love your employees you should bond with your employees uh, you should do all sorts of stuff but you should monitor their data you should look at uh, especially employees that have the opportunity to sell your stuff, be it PII, financial information, payment cards, medical records, whatever someone is willing to pay for. Uh, be wary of USB devices. You should invest in some device control software that will prevent the use of a USB device. Or disable without... them altogether. Right. There are situations <laughs> where there are valid uses for USB devices such as USB keyboards. Some people need USB external hard drives to store stuff on. I fully understand that. I mean, part of my incident response junk bag is a giant external hard drive that has massive rainbow tables on them. So that's a valid use for it. But using software that requires specific administrator approval and the software to be on a whitelist that, or I'm sorry, the actual USB hardware to be on a whitelist, that's more in line with what I would expect. And then, you know, this says to keep one eye on your data and the other on employees. You know, you've got to have a good, you've got to have a good monitoring program. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. So we just hit page 39. Let's take another quick break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about miscellaneous errors, physical theft and loss, and Crimeware. Sit tight. Are you subscribed to this podcast? If not, please do so on iTunes and at advancedpersistentsecurity.net slash podcast. Okay, so we're back from the break, and we're going to kind of pick up our pace a little bit because we've realized exactly how much time we've spent. So the good thing is we've kind of handled the biggest parts of it. So at this point, we're going to start with miscellaneous errors. These are incidents where unintentional actions directly compromise the security system. 
We saw 11,000 and some change of incidents and less than 200 confirmed disclosures. So it happened, but not too big. People aren't perfect. We know this. Uh, that's the reason we have a security program. That's the reason we scan, evaluate, and test things. That's why we have a change control process so you can roll things back. As a hacker, we're not necessarily trying to defeat the technologies. We're trying to find misconfigurations uh, or errors where something's just not been updated. We're looking for DERP. We're looking for DERP, data errors that reduce productivity. Because of that, this, this definitely creates a use for things, such as a capacity shortage. When you don't have enough storage space for something, you go buy your own external hard drive, you use it at home, you infect it with malware, you bring it to work, bam. <laughs> There's a big problem. Misdelivery. You accidentally hit reply all on that email and oops. Or you reveal a, a strategic partner via a publishing error a day or two early. You misconfigure your mail server. You reject all HTTPS traffic for payment data. Uh-oh. <laughs> uh, you could have entry errors, omissions, other errors, etc. So what do they lead to? Mostly external data spills, mostly to customers. Sometimes you'll have some internal errors and the employees will report them. Um, you can have external people uh, with actor disclosure, audits, or finding documents, especially people and entities that's running spiders across your page. That's one way that people find API keys. That's how uh, the crypto in GitHub was uh, was disclosed because people were spidering GitHub's website and found encryption keys. Your recommended controls for this, they are learning from your mistake. You should establish uh, lessons learned for everything. You should keep track of your common errors and figure out how to work around them and try to establish policies to make sure that it doesn't happen. You should have an established procedure for disposing of things. You don't just throw something in the trash. You shred certain documents. You send other documents off-site to be shredded, like instruction manuals. Be careful what you're putting in your job descriptions. There could be some PII, some sensitive data there. Uh, with your hard drives, don't sell them to some random company. You should always drive a nail through them, scorch them to make them melt, then throw them into the ocean tied to a cinder block or something to that effect. <laughs> so I'm going to turn it over to Matthew for physical theft and loss. All right, well, it's a good, uh, good uh, topic to go over after we just went over um, miscellaneous errors because some of those errors could be just losing the item, right? So physical theft and loss. Description, pretty much what it sounds like. Any incident or information asset went missing, whether it was a replacement or it was stolen. Public and healthcare, that, that, you know, that checks. 9,700 incidents, 56 confirmed data disclosures, so it doesn't happen too often. The key findings, uh, lost assets were over 100 times more prevalent than theft. So when somebody says, somebody stole my keys, you tell them you're 100% more likely that you lost them uh, per Verizon. <laughs> so humans, employees lose things, bad guys steal things, full disk encryption, right? Right, Joe? So um, whether you're going to lose it or it's going to get stolen, uh, it should be encrypted. Um, 
Joe, do you have a, a thought on that real quick on the full disk encryption? Well, you should encrypt everything as plausible. There, the, the three stages of data, you should have a mechanism for encrypting them at all three stages, and those being at rest, in transit, and in use. So part of your secure coding principles would be making sure that your data in use is encrypted. And then the obvious, using TLS versus SSL or another secure protocol for right. data in transit. But you should also have some sort of method for encrypting your data at rest just solely on the fact, I mean, somebody can steal your stuff. They can replace your hard drive and make a copy. They can pull your hard drive, make a copy of it, and you'd be none the wiser. If you have it encrypted, it's making it useless. It's just like ransomware. We In the ransomware discussion, we talked about full disk encryption as a mitigation for ransomware. That just makes what they're trying to hold for ransom more useless, especially if they take the exfiltration approach. But at the same time, you have to think of encryption from a, a, point, a standpoint of availability, and it can actually reduce your availability. It can actually cause what I call a CYDOS, a self-induced denial of service when you encrypt everything you, and you make up really strong, awesome encryption keys and you don't document them properly and store them in a secure place such as a vault or a safe and all of a sudden you can't get back into it and there's no way to decrypt it. Yeah. So there's that. And then if you know if we really wanted to get down the rabbit hole, which considering how long this report is and how much time we've already spent – I don't think it would be wise to do so, but there's always the debate of Apple versus the FBI as well. <laughs> that could go on for days. So, yeah, I think that this point's really point pushing towards uh, stuff's actually lost more often than it's stolen when it comes to laptops, hard drives, information that needs to be encrypted uh, when it's at rest or in transit. But, um, yeah, so if you lose it, it then can get stolen still. So, yeah. So recommended controls, just do it. Nike, full disencryption on mobile devices and removal media, make it part of the standard build. Make it part of the policy, something that APS provides. Uh, changes in attitude, again, keep hope alive that security and the situational awareness will become ingrained in your users with the proper training. Um, dead trees. Rain in the paper as much as feasible. Um, yeah, you're going to be standing in front of the shredder a lot if you're, if you're printing off too much paper. Uh, and it, that's just another vulnerability. All right. Throwing it back over to you, Crimeware. Well, before we start on Crimeware, you know, to, to address those final three controls, the changes in attitudes, that's something else that, I mean, while advanced persistent security doesn't offer services to coerce your management into being secure in, in mind or fostering a culture of security, through our training, that is something that we can definitely enforce. So we have the policy side and we have the training inside, the training aspect. We can help your management come up with the policy, and then we can help you come up with the training to make sure that the employees are where they need to be with it and that management understands, and you re we can really put it in perspective for management. Uh, obviously, the dead trees portion, uh, that might be a time that uh, – it would be a good time to have an initiative to go more electronic if possible or to establish an agreement with someone like Iron Mountain so that they will take your stuff off-site and handle it. But now that that's done, we'll talk about Crimeware. Crimeware 
in this sense uh, is defined as any incident involving malware that did not fit into a more specific pattern. So basically they're just saying it's petty criminals. So there are about 8,000 incidents and less than 50 with confirmed disclosure. So they're typically financially motivated in one way or another. If they're not trying to steal your data, they're trying to steal your resources so that they can steal other data, right? So if they have a botnet, they can use that to brute force into something else. But with it, ransomware falls under this category. It's number two right behind C2. I'm going to go ahead and call it uh, when we look at the 2017 DBIR. Ransomware is going to be head and shoulders above C2. Number three on this was uh, spyware and keyloggers, followed by backdoors and data exfiltration. So basically with the C2, it's saying that the criminals that are writing malware to use your machines, they are using it for command and control. So that's more of the botnets. So they can sell you more likes on Twitter or whatever. And, you know, how does it get there? Mostly drive-by downloads and email attachments. The cyber.police ransomware that just made its way to Android was actually delivered via malvertising, which was malicious advertising using JavaScript, and it was primarily on porn sites. Surprise, surprise. And as people used their Android devices on the porn sites, it would perform a drive-by download and take over the phone. It wouldn't encrypt it. It would just be a, an annoying pop-up that would say, hey, uh, we've taken your phone because you violated all these laws. You have to give us $400 in Apple gift cards, which makes absolutely no sense because it's on an Android phone. But either way, um, other means of infection would be email link, download by malware. So basically you have malware downloading more malware and network propagation, such as a worm like Stuxnet. So with this, you kind of, it gets really challenging because you could have file integrity monitoring systems, but there's some, there's some files that always change. The files themselves are polymorphic. They're not malicious, but they're polymorphic. Their hash is going to change. You can do the hashing, and there's only about 20,000 different MD, MD5 hashes um, that exist out of 3.8 million possibilities. So with regards to that, hashing definitely allows you to say this is legit, this is not, but it's not the only solution as well. Um, so the recommended controls. Okay, so your recommended controls. Uh, you should most certainly uh, evaluate your patches before you deploy them. You should make sure that uh, everything is signed, everything is hashed, you know that it is authentic. You should make sure that executables are limited in their ability to run. This is a good time to edit your privileged user accounts and provide good privileged user training in terms of when to use the account and when not to, and audit that. And then also the final one is uh, you should definitely see, listen, and discuss. And in doing so, you should probably capture some malware and do some reverse engineering on it to kind of determine what's going on. So at this time, uh, do you have anything for that, Matt? Um, I think they had a good in excerpt about ransomware and 
and uh, in Flash, but uh, we could talk about that at a different time. It's pretty interesting. Definitely, definitely tell everybody they need to take a look at this, especially other cybersecurity experts. It's a lot of good data. So, payments card skimmers is the next topic. Uh, we only have a few left here. Uh, the ad at the glance is obviously a payment card skimmer is a device, a physical device that's planted at an ATM, gas pump, or POS terminal in most cases. Top industries targeted finance and retail. 102 incidents, 2015, 86 with confirmed data disclosure, so it's uh, pretty high percentage. Not too many incidents, kind of fallen off of the, fallen off of the radar a little bit, which could bring it back into bring it back into existence more if uh, we don't pay attention. 70% of payment card skimming incidents in our data set were blamed or could be blamed on criminal organizations. So. Uh, Figure 37, Romania and Bulgaria account for the bulk of the attacks in which a known organization can be identified. So, Where they are originating from. Okay, yeah. So, not much to talk about here. Um, most of the time, the, the card skimmer is either detected by the store or it's detected by the person uh, using it. Um, I think training and people just hearing about card skimmers has really done a number on people being able to see them. So the recommended controls, um, purchase tamper-resistant terminals. Certain designs are more susceptible to tampering than others. Use tamper-evident controls. Um, usually apply stickers over the doors. Um, weekly weekly uh, inspections. Uh, time for a checkup, established process to check the physical integrity of the ATM. So, same thing. And then consumers, guard your pin. When entering your pin, cover your hand so that any pinhole camera can't see what you're entering. Trust your gut. If you think something looks odd or out of place, don't use it and uh, move on to a different ATM. And or inform the, inform the store management that there may be an issue. Yeah, that's definitely a uh, sound response. And I would say that... Going to an actual bank to use the ATM vice, the ATMs in a gas station would probably be safer. But honestly, I'm originally from eastern Tennessee, and there's been a credit union in my hometown's region where they've found skimmers on two different locations. And with regards to that, um, that's very disconcerting, and you would think that they would have fixed the problem after the first time, but apparently not. So be be very cautious of what you're where you're accessing it look over your back uh listen watch for people listen to the keys see if they make distinct sounds and if you think that it may have been compromised contact your financial institution so next we have cyber espionage so basically that's unauthorized network and system access for state attackers. Uh, we have about 250 incidents and over 150 uh, confirmed disclosures. So it's pretty spot on. When you think states, you're thinking China, Russia, uh, the United States, Korea, what have you. So typically they are going for the public 
industry, then manufacturing for trade secrets, professional information, utilities, which is very scary, transportation, which is, again, scary, mining, healthcare, finance, and education. That's by the breach count. So how do they do it? Typically via C2. Hacking more so than malware, but those two more than any other. Followed by social engineering and phishing, malware backdoors, use of stolen credit cards, data exfiltration, footprinting, social engineering pretexting, which is some ultra shady stuff. Because this is where you basically assume some sort of identity. Think Frank Abengill of Catch Me If You Can. You assume an identity and a backstory and you gain the trust of someone, then you elicit them for the information or to perform the action or what have you. Then the final two being privilege abuse and bribery. So your recommended actions, you should have data execution prevention, threat detection and response, uh, of course, AV, and you should definitely learn about browser and plugin updates. You should protect your email, your network, you should have monitoring and logging. Basically, you should throw everything and the kitchen sink at it. There's a whole list of research reports about different APT units uh, for release by FireEye, Kaspersky, McAfee, ThreatConnect, and CrowdStrike. It's worth uh, taking a look at because FireEye is now owned by Mandiant or vice versa, I can't recall. And they're the ones that really outed APT1, but now they're talking about APT28 and APT30, which are more than likely different units uh, performing the same thing. I'm going to turn it over to Matthew. He'll give you his spin on this and start on denial of service attacks. All right, so my spin on it, obviously cyber espionage is a pretty big deal in the, the military, which I'm still a part of. We're, we're always given training on insider espionage, cyber espionage. We, we know where a lot of it comes from and uh, who the big players are. Obviously, network protection, logging, email protection, endpoint protection, those are all uh, really good recommended controls. It's not going to stop everything, as we've seen. You have to do... You have to do your due, your due diligence to uh, stop a lot of these attacks. I mean, the the NSA director said himself the, the, the biggest, the scariest thing for them when they're trying to um, penetrate a system is an attentive network administrator. So it really starts from the bottom. Moving over to denial service attacks, the at-a-glance is any attack intended to compromise the availability of the CIA triad. Availability of networks and systems include both a network and application attacks designed to overwhelm the system, resulting in performance degradation or interruption of service, denial of service. Top industries are pretty much every industry for this. Uh, frequency, 9600 for this sample one confirmed data disclosure. Obviously, the goal of DOS and DDoS is not data disclosure, it's the is to deny the use of the data. Attacks are either large in magnitude or they are long in duration, but typically not both. So you're either going to have a very loud scream or you're going to have a long conversation that seems to never end. Um, so pretty much it's really going over a lot of the same things. So it's either a long conversation 
that seems to never end or a loud, really loud screaming. So the mean um, bits per second for the scream, 5.51 gigabits per second over a short period. And then the, the, the conversation type DDoS, 1.89 uh, megabits per second. So a lot of the recommended controls, fear not the lone wolf. Isolate key assets to help prevent your devices from being used to launch attacks. So don't be part of the botnet. Um, use patch your services, servers and services. Use your IDS, IPS. Use your firewalls. Use your DMZs. And have a response plan to be ready. So walking around with your head in the clouds, it makes sense that the peak size, complexity, and frequency of DOS attacks should continue to evolve and rise. That cloud... The cloud service providers must have solution in order to protect the availability of their service infrastructures. I think that's one of the biggest vulnerabilities of cloud is availability and confidentiality is a problem and will be a problem in the future. Understand the capabilities of your defenses. Some networks are going to have more protection against DOS, DDoS attacks. Some are going to have less. Mom and pop stores aren't going to have much if somebody targets them. Um, big companies like Citigroup, Citibank, or Chase are going to have a lot more in place. So throwing that over, your spin, and then everything else, wrap it up. So with denial of service, yes, it is an effect on availability, and it's definitely something meant to be disruptive very rarely does it serve any other purpose. And usually when you're talking about the ideological attacks, this is one of them. So they may do something like just do a denial of service for the sake of doing it because they don't agree with the organization. An alternative would be saying... <clears throat> an alternative would be spoofing an email from the help desk saying, hey... Uh, we're going to be doing network maintenance tomorrow. If you experience any connectivity issues, call this number. Okay, well, then they do a denial of service attack tomorrow around the time their quote-unquote maintenance occurs, and people call them, and they say, oh, well, let me reset your account. Hold on. What's your, what's your username? Okay, J-D-O-E. Okay, okay, John. What's your password? Oh. A, B, C, D, E, F, G, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, exclamation point. Okay, hold on. And then they'll back the denial of service out on that user. And, well, I mean, that's kind of like a denial of service slash phishing attack, really. So it can get elaborate or it can be easy. It can be any of the above. Moving on to the everything else category, um, basically... Everything else was mostly hacking, a little bit of social engineering, a little bit of physical, and not an entirely high amount of malware breaches. So that's kind of good, but at the same time, that means that we're doing a lot of stuff for malware, but we're not really doing things for protecting our technical controls. We're not implementing the IDS, the IPS. We're not configurating firewalls. We're, we're basically expecting antivirus and locking doors to solve the problem for us. When in reality, you know, 
user awareness training and technical implementations will protect you more than the others will. That's really about it to talk about the types of attacks. We could talk about the whole wrap-up section really quick, which basically ties phishing to an email link or an email attachment that's going to go to a person to get them to alter their behavior and give the attacker access to the desktop. At that point, they will install the malware using stolen credentials, and you know that's one method of attack. The other would be, you know, they lateral <clears throat> after they have those stolen credentials, they're going to lateral over because everybody uses the same password everywhere, right? And they are going to conduct some lateral movement, do a little bit of pivoting, and gain some privilege escalation. At that point, they're going to directly install some malware. They'll probably put in a backdoor, some C2s, uh, and then figure out what they're going to do, and then start classifying the assets, as you should have beforehand. They're going to be looking for your high-value assets, such as your sensitive data, your payment card information, your PHI, or your point-of-sale system. Okay, so that pretty much wraps up the DBIR for 2016, talking about events from 2015. Sit tight. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we are going to provide our thoughts on this and just provide a little bit of back-and-forth information security banter. Sit tight. Don't forget to check out our blog at advancedpersistentsecurity.net slash blog. Follow us on Twitter at ADVPersistentSEC and follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash advancedpersistentsecurity. We are back from our final break, and now we are going to have a quick discussion, and then we will say goodbye. So, a few notes to start with. In case you forgot or missed it, at the beginning of our podcast, we have coupon codes to get discounted training at EC Council Hacker Halted September 11th through the 14th, and also on the 15th and the 16th for the conference in Atlanta, Georgia. Use coupon code HHAPSTRN for training. It will get you $1,000 off. Training will be $19.99 by $29.99. Use coupon code HHAPSCON for the conference. It will get you in for $35 as opposed to $200. Also, DerbyCon 6, Louisville, Kentucky, September 21st through the 25th. Tickets went on sale today. I don't know for certain yet, but I'm going to assume that they have probably already sold out. If not, have fun. Check out our blog. We, uh, we cover all the, the latest hacking attacks, penetrations, malware, things of that nature. Anything cyber-related, cybersecurity-related, including, you know, recently we had a ransomware shut down electric and water utility. So just like we were talking about earlier, email... Email attachment, user clicked on attachment, attachment installed on the computer, and then infected the entire organization's files, and then encrypted them, shut down the, the water and electricity. Just another uh, example of companies need the training that users continually click on these links, they continually click on these attachments, and it's going to get worse and worse. It's just another manic Stuxnet, so don't... don't don't hate me for my bad singing skills, but, you know, with regard to ransomware spreading like wildfire, that 
you can't think of anything spreading like wildfire and not think about Stuxnet. I can't think so, about. Oh, go ahead. You go ahead. Uh, I was like, I can't think about. Whenever someone says Stuxnet, I immediately think uh, Israel, Iran. <laughs> well, that's exactly what I'm referring to. <laughs> Other stuff going on in the news right now. I just saw where on Entrepreneur.com, a place where you don't normally see security news. They are running an article saying two-thirds of all thumb drives are infected with some sort of malware. That's a little uh, troubling, but at the same time, it makes a uh, good case for that. Another thing that's uh, relevant in the world today, uh, we have the... Um, so you've got the, the Hacker Humble Bundle available and basically you go to it and you choose how much you want to pay you get electronic copies of several books so the books are automate the boring stuff with python the linux command line the smart girl's guide to privacy hacking the xbox the maker's guide to the zombie apocalypse oh, i'm sorry you pay any amount and you get those four books if you pay more than the average, which at the time of recording this is $14.92, you also get The Maker's Guide to the Zombie Apocalypse, Silence on the Wire, A Bug Hunter's Diary, Designing BSD Root Kits, and Bitcoin for the Befuddled. If you pay $15 or more, you unlock Hacking, The Art of Exploitation, Practical Malware Analysis, and Python Crash Course, as well as Black Hat Python. All of these are on the humblebundle.com slash books under the No Starch Hacking Books. These are all from the No Starch Press. They are uh, $366 value, and they support charity. So they are in PDF format, EPUB format, and Mobi format. You can use them on a Kindle, iPad, Kobo, and a Nook. You can also use them on a computer or anything else that reads PDF. Also, this sale is only good for another nine days, 14 hours, and 21 minutes. So by the time this goes live, it will be five days. And the sound of that woman from The Grudge, five days! Anything else? That about wraps it up. I'm going to say aloha from the great state of Hawaii. Okay, so with that being said, uh, we will go ahead and wrap it up, and we will see you next time. The next episode will be with Leighton Johnson again. We will be discussing the Cloud Security Alliance Treacherous 12 Concerns, numbers 5 through 8, which encompass account hijacking, malicious insiders, advanced persistent threats, not to be confused with advanced persistent security, aha, uh -huh, and data loss. So until then, stay secure. Thank you for listening to the Advanced Persistent Security Podcast. Until next time, stay secure and don't forget to subscribe to this podcast.